0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com.
1: The reading for this sermon is 1 Samuel 17, 41-47. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David... You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the, the of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a god in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand you may be seated
0: Well, let me say good morning. If you do have a copy of God's Word, it will be in First Samuel chapter 17. We'll work our way through that chapter. And as you're turning there, just let me bring greetings in the name of our Lord and also greetings from the churches of the Pillar Network. It's a, a joy to to do gospel ministry together uh, through these churches and to have Redeemer Bible as a part of that work. Uh, knowing Jason and Jason's amazing ability at sarcasm, I didn't know what kind of introduction I would get. So I was prepared to go a different way, but it is a, uh, a joy <laughs> to be here uh, with Jason and to be here with this church family and to have this privilege of opening God's Word with this faith family. Uh, I've only been in Minnesota twice, so this, this year and then exactly a year ago, and it was 70 degrees cooler than it is today, and so um, I'm thankful that the Lord turned up the heat a little bit for my second trip to uh, Minnesota. The text in front of us this morning is very familiar even to unbelievers, the story of David and Goliath. In fact, it's a story that's often used by sports teams, you know, coaches to rally their team as, a, as an underdog in certain situations, and because of the familiarity of this text, I think it's a text that can easily be misunderstood. Growing up, I heard this text taught in all kinds of ways. The, the, the moral of the story is the bigger they are, the harder they fall, or, you know, we hear the sermons that go something like this, dare to be a David, or... Uh, we make movies that are talking about us facing our giants, and I stress in that us facing our giants. The text, however, though, as we will see, with all, as with all of Scripture, is primarily about the glory of God. In fact, the text this morning is more about a big God than a big you. But since we have a big God, we should have courageous faith. We should have great faith. And the text centers on a spirit-anointed king who fights for his people precisely because they cannot... And do not fight for themselves. And they certainly cannot face down their giants. So, when we come to a text like this, I think we need to be slow to identify with the main character in the story, David, and we need to be quick to identify with the Israelites who stand on the sideline for the most part in this story. But it is, it is an amazing and it is a true story from which we have much to learn. So much, in fact, that I will not unpack it all. This morning, I mean, there are uh, something about 51 verses we'll try to make our way through. I'll skip a few here and there. Uh, we certainly want to be out of the service by, in time for the Super Bowl. And as a guest preacher, you don't want to break the record for the longest sermon in a church. And so that won't happen this morning. But in this story, we will see echoes of Genesis chapter 3, and, uh, chapter three verse 15. We will see the war with the serpent from Eden. We will see faith. We will see courage. We will see the weak shaming the strong. We will see the the humble shaming the proud. We will get a glimpse of what it looks like to have zeal for the glory of God. And yes, as I believe with all of the Old Testament, we will get a picture of our Christ as we look at the text this morning. And so I want to read a couple of verses of context and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 15 24 through 28, and then I'm going to look at. 1 Samuel sixteen eleven through 13, and then again I'll pray. And here's what the author writes as he's moved along by the Holy Spirit. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then let's look at verse 11 in chapter 16. Here's what it says. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, now as we uh, turn our attention to the book, I ask that you would uh, help me. Father, at no other time than when I open your book to address your people, am I aware of my utter need for your help? And so Father, now would you help me preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people? Preach with confidence in your word for the sake of the lost? But Father, we uh, ask this morning that we would most of all be about the glory of your name and so father now as we do turn our attention here father would you show us our sin father then would you show us our savior and father by beholding him may we look more like him and we pray this in christ's name amen i think a good question is what do you fear or what scares you so we think about that for a minute heights scare some people snakes spiders um, I happen to be afraid of lakes. Uh, <laughs> there are snakes and Chevy trucks in there and it's just a weird thing. <laughs> public speaking scares some people. In fact, Seinfeld laments that the uh, one survey he saw says the number one fear that Americans have is public speaking and the number two fear that Americans have is death. And so he points out you would rather be in the coffin than actually giving the eulogy at a funeral. Can you recall times when you have had fear starting to, to grip you, when you've been in a situation where you started to have this kind of fright come upon you? I, I still remember a time when I was in middle school at a minor league baseball game, and we're sitting there in the stands, and these older guys who are uh, drinking a little bit too much, they stand up, and they start screaming at us because we wouldn't stand up and do the wave. Now, I, there's a lot of reasons for you to yell at me, but not doing the wave isn't one of them and yet I still remember the, the fear that gripped me in that moment as these, these older guys are, are screaming at us for not standing up. Unfortunately, because we do live in a fallen world, fear is a part of everyday life. And I think along with the question, what do we fear, I think another question would be this, what enemies do we face? What are the kind of things that we face that do bring about fear in our lives, that do make us scared? I mean, things like death and disease and disasters, There are real enemies. There are real enemies that are internal enemies, enemies such as our sinful appetites of lust and greed and anger and obsession with the approval of others. And we certainly have external enemies, too, in a fallen world, right? Enemies that threaten all of us just the the same, storms and earthquakes and and cancer, and on and on and on we could go. In fact, I was reading just this week that Luther, when he wrote the, the hymn, the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote it, some scholars believe, as the plague was beginning to hit Europe. And so he knew that he had to remind the church that we have something to hold on to in the face of fear. But we do live in a world of formidable enemies. We face a serpent who would love nothing more than to, to sift us like wheat, the scriptures tell us. And so the question this morning I want to think about as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 17 is, in a world of foes, in a world of fear, where do we turn for true courage? And where do we turn for abiding faith? Where is our abiding faith to be directed? And I think the text this morning will help us see that true and lasting courage is shaped by faith. It is shaped by confidence in God who keeps his promises to deliver his people, yes, sometimes in this life. But ultimately, in the one to come. My main idea this morning is this God provides a courageous king who prevails for his people by faith. God provides a courageous king who prevails for his people by faith. Now, here's the context of what's going on in this portion of 1 Samuel, and we just read some of it. It is in the days after the judges, and Israel now has the king that they wanted, a a king named Saul who it says is, is tall and he's strong and he's attractive, and yet he has just disregarded and disobeyed God's voice. So Samuel has informed him that God has now rejected him and given his kingdom to another who is better than he. And now in chapter 16, the other portion of the text that we read, for the first time in the scriptures, we are introduced to this man named David, to this boy named David, who is an unlikely king from humble roots. He's unlikely because he is still young. He's, he's in the text described as a runt. The, the word there in the ESV for youngest actually means he is the smallest. And so when he comes forward, this is a, this is a small boy that Samuel anoints. Also, the description here, that this description that he is ruddy, that he's handsome, that he has pretty eyes, is meant to invoke in us this idea that he is a cute kid, not a powerful king, not a warrior king by any means. But the text is clear. God looks at the heart. And so he has Samuel anoint him as king. It's pivotal to the story because now, because he is anointed, the spirit comes upon him. In the Old Testament, when the spirit comes upon someone, it is always empowering that person For service to God. That could be the kind of service that is to defeat God's enemy. The spirit comes upon somebody like Samson. He goes out and destroys the the Philistines. The spirit comes upon the prophets in order for them to prophesy. The spirit comes upon the kings in order to give them wisdom to rule. And so from this day on, what we read in 1 Samuel 16, it is indicating the spirit of God is with David. Thus, he is the true and rightful king. Now, the text this morning, chapter 17, I think, I'm going to break it down into just three parts. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 16 is the fear of Israel in the face of God's enemy. The fear of Israel in the face of God's enemies. Enemies who oppose God's people, the Israelites, and who certainly want to rid them of presence in the land. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1 says this. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and then move ahead to verse three. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other, with a valley between them. Now the Philistines are the arch enemies of Israel. They have come to wipe Israel out, to certainly remove any presence of them from the land. And if you know the Old Testament, when you read something like this, when you see that that the Philistines are still in the land, it should, it should make warning bells go off. The children of Israel were told that they were to drive out these idolatrous Philistines. They had been promised by God that they would have this land, and they would have victory over these people, and yet they are still present. They have not done what the Lord asked them to do. And because of their disobedience, because they have refused to drive out the idolatrous Philistines, it now may cost them their lives. It may cost them their very lives. The whole narrative here, certainly in these first few verses, but just permeating throughout, is telling us Israel does not trust in the promises of God, in contrast to this youthful boy who certainly trusts in the promises of God, and he will lean on the promises of God. Now, in the text, we're introduced to this giant, and we get his description in verse 4 through 7, and then we hear his taunts in verses 8 through 10. Here's what the text says. And there came up out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. Here's the the, uh, the antagonist in the text, Goliath of Gath. That's a, that's a great, it's a strong name, a good name for a, a great Dane or something. But try to put yourself in the scene as a soldier of Israel, right? Here comes this behemoth of a man stepping out into the field to, to taunt the Israelites. And this is, he's, he's huge. For NBA fans, thank Shaquille O'Neal. For football fans in the you know, Super Bowl today, thank William the Refrigerator Perry, for WWF fans in here, if you want to identify yourselves, think Andre the Giant. He's huge. In fact, he's bigger than these men. He's bigger than Andre the Giant. How large is he? Well, scholars, you know, kind of disagree on this, but most say he's 9 feet 9 inches tall. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds. Think about that. His armor alone is larger than a fifth grader. His spear weighs 15 pounds. And so he is a massive and strong individual. Just just slightly taller and stronger than Jason. I don't know why you're laughing at that. And the sheer sight of his size and the enormity of his armor terrifies Israel. It's interesting that there's a lot of attention given here to Goliath's armor. And part of that is to show us just how big he is. But there's actually actually a larger theological purpose as well. In verse 5, the literal rendering of the Hebrew, in fact, if you have an NASB, it'll say this, but the literal rendering of the Hebrew for his armor, or this coat of mail that is mentioned here in the text, means scale armor. The author wants the reader to know Goliath looks like a massive serpent, and that once again among God's people in God's land, just like as in Eden, a serpent has come in as a threat to God's people. Here in the text we come to what is called representative combat, or this idea of a champion stepping out from one side to fight on behalf of their people in this what would be a winner-take-all challenge. Right, the the, the champion that wins, his people get the, the reward, and so you have this one champion, or what some scholars call a go-between man, who would step out, the one in the place of the many, to fight for his side, standing but in front of the enemy of God, in front of the enemies. And protecting his people behind him. And whoever killed the other one, his people would partake in the victories and the spoils of war, even if they did nothing to accomplish that victory. And now verse 11 says this. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Again, in the background of this is the promises of God. This is a very sad verse. The Israelites... The people of God, with all the promises of God, are cowering like they are already defeated. Worst of all, the king, Saul, who is described in 1 Samuel 9 as a big man himself, as one who it says is a shoulder taller than all other Israelites, is also himself greatly afraid. They have disregarded that God is on their side. They have disregarded that he has promised them that they would have this land. That he, he has promised them that they would defeat the Philistines. There is no faith. There is no courage. And if you didn't notice it, there is not even a mention of prayer in the text in the face of these enemies. Dominating this text is not just the size of the enemy, but the size of the unbelief among God's people. Now skip down to verse 16. Here's what it says. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. He doesn't just do this once but for 40 days he comes out to taunt the army of the people of God. And that's a significant number. This 40 days. It it recalls the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their lack of faith, their lack of courage to take the promised land. Do you remember why they wouldn't take the land? Think back to what's happening in the Pentateuch, the reason they wouldn't take the land, the reason they're punished to wander in the wilderness is that when 10 of the 12 spies come back to tell them about people in the land, they say they are giants and we are grasshoppers in their sight. And now again, the people of Israel are, as it were, back in the wilderness. And again, they fail. They fail to believe that God is with them. And they may be thinking, we need a giant to rival their giant But for those of us that know the story, we know that is not so. They simply need a youthful boy who has faith in God. And that's what we see in the second part of the text. The faith of David in the face of God's enemies. Verse 17 through verse 37. Here's what it says. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and this ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. Jesse tells David, Take some bread. Take some cheese down to to your brothers in the army. And then verse 23 is the turning point in the text. As David gets there, as he's talking to his brothers, here's what happens. Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Once again, here comes this vile man, this giant behemoth. He is taunting Israel. He is challenging Israel. But something different happens this time, and it's simply this. This time David hears him. And here's what it says, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw this man fled from him, keep that in mind, and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? The men of Israel flee in the sight of this giant. Because of how desperate the situation is, Saul offers the world to anybody who will stand up for the people of Israel. Whoever takes down the giant gets lots of money, he gets the princess, he no longer will have taxes. We just got our W-2s from last year, so being exempt from taxes, you would think that's a good enough reward that somebody might at least try to take on the giant, but they have to be thinking, what good is a reward if you're six feet under? And so they're greatly afraid. David's different, though, the text shows us. In fact, as David hears what this Goliath is saying this this act of defying Israel, David is ticked off. that's what's going on in verse 26. Here's what verse 26 continues to say. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is saying in this moment, David understands the challenge here is not just against Israel. The challenge is against Israel's God, and David will not stand for it. As David hears what Goliath is saying, he essentially says this. Has this man lost his mind? Who is he to think that he can defy our God? David has rightly sized up the situation. He understands this is not just a physical battle. This is a theological and spiritual one. The glory and the honor and the reputation of Yahweh, Israel's God, is at stake. And he will not let it stand that somebody is defying their God. And I want us just to let that sink in for a minute, a minute this morning by way of application. Whether you're in this room and you're a... A child, a a teenager, young adult, more seasoned adult. Just let this sit for a minute. David is more concerned with the reputation of God than he is his own safety. And what will that mean for us? David is more concerned with the reputation of God than he is with his own comfort. And so I just want us to think through what will that mean for us in our lives? Now skip down to verse 31. Saul and David now have a conversation. Verse 31 says this. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul hears what David has said at the front lines, and so he calls for him. And isn't this a sad scene if you really contemplate what is going on here? The youth, the the runt in the text is saying to this tall and muscular king, don't lose heart. I will go out and fight for your people. Saul initially rejects his offer. You see this in verse 33. He says, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. He rejects what he's saying. I mean, imagine how this went down. I mean, Saul's essentially saying, David, it's cute you think you can do this, and thanks for bringing the bread and cheese. That was helpful, but you can't go against this guy. You're a boy, and he's a warrior. But David will not let that deter him either. Verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. David is confident, as he has defeated wild animals to protect The sheep, his father's sheep, he now will, as the anointed king, protect his new flock, the the people of Israel. David is courageous because of his faith in the fact that God will defend his own honor. He believes God will make Goliath's fate the same fate as the lions and the bears that he has had to go up against. In David's mind, as Goliath began to disgrace and blaspheme God, he became like one of these wild animals who threatened the flock of God. And now David, the the new Adam, will take dominion over the wild animal that threatens the people of Israel. David is confident because he serves a God who has zeal for his own name, and he serves a God who is much larger than any giant. And so this youthful runt will go to war while the unfit king stands idly by and lets him do it, which takes us to the final part of the text, the victory of David over God's enemy on behalf of God's People. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David doesn't want the armor. It's a sign that David intends to go to battle with, with uh, heavenly weapons, not just earthly ones, weapons of faith. He goes out like a shepherd to protect his sheep, to, to tame the wild animal by taking five stones. Most scholars would say these stones would have been about the size of a tennis ball. Peter Lightheart, one Old Testament scholar, says this about the text. Goliath had committed blasphemy, a capital crime, and now David goes out into the field to stone him to death. And now it's, it's go time. The tension has built to this moment, Moment, this, this one-on-one duel. It's one of the reasons there's, there's such tension. Even in our, in our hand-to-hand combat sports, there's such tension when it's just one man against one man. And so we have built to this moment. Here it is, one-on-one. This is, this is Ollie Frazier. This is Tyson Holyfield. This is Mayweather Pacquiao. This is Rocky versus Drago, which is the best of the Rocky movies. And now the champion's fate will be the fate of his people. The champion's fate will be the fate of his people. And one of those clear showdowns that you see where there is a clearly righteous person and a clearly wicked person. We see this throughout in stories as well. See this in real life. See this in movies like The Gladiator. The the Gladiator versus Caesar. The righteous versus the unrighteous versus the wicked. You see this. In wars, the allies versus the access powers. You see this in the NFL, anybody versus the Packers. (laughs) In most places, I would say anybody versus the Patriots, but I think the Packers are hated. And yet again, this is not just about mono and mono combat. This is a theological battle. Again, one dressed like a snake who defies God who wields death against God's people, just like the serpent from Eden did. And just as Adam was to rule over the beast of the field, David now steps out into the field to exercise dominion over this beast. And here's what it says, verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. Goliath moves forward with his shield bearer in front of him, who, who, by the way, turns out to be completely useless in his job. He believes that David is unfit for the challenge. Again, you will see in the following verses, he thinks David is a cute kid. And so he starts talking trash to him. He, he starts to ultimately curse David by his gods, by his false gods. And here's what it says. He says, When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Here's what basically Goliath tells David. Not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to disgrace you when I do it, and I'm going to do so by the power of my gods. And yet David is not, David's not scared. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel's, Of Israel, whom you have defied. David is not intimidated by his size. David is not intimidated by his weapons. He reminds Goliath, You have mocked God, and that will not go on forever. David's response draws stark contrast in their strategies, right? Goliath relies on his might. Goliath relies on his weapon. David relies on the Lord of hosts. And again, this looks like a mismatch, right? Throughout, the author has gone to great lengths to show us the invulnerability of Goliath and the vulnerability of David. And yet, all David sees in front of him is a blasphemous mortal man, and he sees behind him an all-powerful immortal God. In this story, the true underdog is actually Goliath. He has no chance. And David goes, I'd say, Larry Bird and calls his shot in the text. Larry Bird once told Mike Magic Johnson, I'm going to catch the ball Here, I'm going to shoot right there, and you can do nothing about it. And this is what David says here in the text. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David is saying... This will be done so the world will know that Israel's God is mighty to save, even in the face of what may be insurmountable odds, and to save in a way that humanity would not pick and humanity would not expect. Again, at every turn, it looks like Goliath is, is the one who's mighty, and yet the text shows us in verses 48 through 50, the battle doesn't last very long. All of this anticipation builds to this moment. When the Philistine arose and came drew, drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The, stone, the uh, stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. For all of this anticipation, for all of the mouthing of Goliath, it doesn't take very long. And interestingly, as we saw earlier in the text, when Goliath in the past stepped out into the field, the other uh, soldiers of Israel would flee from him. David doesn't flee from him. David runs right towards him. He runs towards him. He takes this stone. He he must launch it with great force, with with clear accuracy, and it, it knocks him out. First round knockout. And now David piles on in victory. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. He piles on, he takes the giant's own weapon and uses, uses it against him, and now the man, the giant man dressed like a serpent, dies from a head wound. This youth has failed the largest man in history, which means just as, though God, just as God does not judge by the outer appearance, by what's on the inside, we do not judge our enemies by their size and their strength and their cunning. David's crushing of the enemy's head leads to the rout of the Philistine army. David's people now share in victory, though they had not earned it themselves, and they now experience salvation from an unexpected champion, which sounds familiar. See there's a problem though in the text. This salvation would only be temporary. And there would be though there are glimpses of the promise of Genesis 3:15 in this text, the ultimate fulfillment would have to wait for another in the line of Jesse who would deliver God's people ultimately. And you see the rest of the Old Testament would anticipate a son of David who would bring about eternal salvation, who would establish a forever kingdom where God's people would finally have eternal rest. And yet, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, all of David's sons fail. They're all sinners. They all fail, and the hope of the world, and the hope of the promises of God, lie dead in Jerusalem tombs. Until we once again return to Bethlehem, to the birth of another unlikely warrior king who will ultimately save his people, one who would be baptized, he would be anointed. The Spirit would rush upon him. And if you read the New Testament, you understand that as soon as the Spirit comes upon him at his anointing, at his baptism, he immediately goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and makes war with the serpent. He goes out to tame the beast and to take on the blasphemous enemy of God. In fact, there would be another king who by faith would trust the promises of God, that he would, he would trust that God would deliver him from the hand of his enemies to the one who would cry with loud cries to the one who was able to save him from death. There will be another champion whose fate will be the fate of his people. The one who we're told will plunder the strong man's house and take his goods. I think the question this morning is, how did he do it? How did he do it? How did he accomplish ultimate salvation how did he accomplish ultimate deliverance for god's people and he did so by becoming our go-between man who would face our giants who would face our enemies those of sin and death and the serpent himself the one in the place of the many we again are on the sidelines and we need a son of jesse to stand between us and our enemies And on a hill called Calvary, he defeats our greatest enemies. He vanquishes our foe by turning his own weapons against him. He he does so by becoming our sin bearer. As he takes on himself our shame and our guilt and our penalty, as hour after hour, the judgment of God do our sin. Do our rebellion. And do our wickedness with, with touch down upon him at Golgotha. And in so doing, what he's doing in that moment is he is, he is taking the enemy's weapons away from him. Those, those weapons of accusation and death for sin. And he is delivering a fatal head wound to What Revelation 12 would call the dragon, the serpent. And we're told in Revelation, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them night and day has been thrown down. How did he accomplish this? It's what most theologians call the great exchange. I love the quote from an old Baptist preacher named R.G. Lee because he talks about this great exchange. He says, at the cross, he became all that God must judge so that we, by faith in him, might become all that God cannot And so here he is, our go-between man, the promised man of Genesis chapter 3, Jesus of Nazareth, the rightful heir to the throne of David, who is an even greater shepherd of the sheep than David because he would not just risk his life for his sheep, he would lay it down for them. And yet we know his sacrifice is good, and we know that his sacrifice is accepted. We know that he is greater than David because David's tomb is still with us, we are told in Acts. But this man only needed a tomb for three days. God now accepting him as the perfect sacrifice who is able to deliver us from our greatest enemies. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, whether you know it or not, you have enemies. Enemies within, enemies of sin, and enemies without. A serpent who wants to sift you like wheat. And I have a suspicion that deep down you know you are a sinner. You know that you are not right with God. You know that you will not be delivered from the judgment to come. And you probably like... Many of us, before we knew Christ, you do many things to make sure you never have to think about that, to ease your conscience. And I want you to know that no matter what you try, as one great father of the church would say, your soul will be restless until it finds its rest in Christ. But the greatest news in all of the world that God has provided a way, God has provided a mediator that will accomplish for you what you cannot accomplish on your own, who, who can provide for you salvation, ultimate rest, who can solve your biggest problems if you will simply turn to him in repentance and faith. If you will just say, Father, I know I'm a sinner. If you will cry out like that tax collector in the Gospels, Lord, have mercy upon me. I know there are pastors and there are brothers and sisters in this room right now. If, that, if that's you, they would love to talk with you when this service ends about what it looks like to, to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And then, brothers and sisters, how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, if we are in Christ, it means we now have the Spirit. We are now the Israelites who are bold and advancing because of the victory of our King, which means certainly we should have courageous faith. Courageous faith rather than fear, not because we are big, but because we serve an all-powerful God. This text should produce in us a humble, reverent courage because we know God has solved our biggest problem. He can solve all of our smaller ones as well. And by the power of the Spirit, we move forward. This text also means that we must be zealous for the glory of God and the fame of his name because we now bear his name. Again, David was willing to risk his comfort. He was willing to risk his life for the glory of God. The question is, are we? And I think the question is, what will this look like for us? Where will we in our lives make sacrifices because we are zealous for God's glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the seas? I think anytime we come to a text that makes demands that we are zealous for the glory of God, I think we should also be reminded of the gospel this morning. That for every time we have failed when it comes to these things, that Jesus has provided forgiveness. For every time that I have doubted, for every time I've been in a situation where I've cowered, not spoken, Every time I've not been courageous with my faith, Jesus bore in his own body the penalty for that sin. And that sort of love and affection for us in the midst of our sin should produce in us affection for our Savior. And I hope certainly a zeal for his name. You know, all those years ago when I was at that minor league baseball game and these guys were yelling at me and cussing at me and I was, I was scared just for a minute because then I remembered sitting next to me was my uncle who weighed 260 pounds and could bench press 500 pounds. And as soon as he stood up, they sat down. Oh, brothers and sisters, in a much greater way, we move forward with courageous, courageous faith no matter what we face in this life because we understand what Paul tells the church at Rome. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. After all, Luther reminds us in that great hymn, We are not underdogs because the right man is on our side and the Lord of hosts is with us. Let's pray.